Welcome to the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church. We hope our broadcast will bless you. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be brought from Luke. That's going to be Luke chapter 3, verse 16. In Luke chapter 3, verse 16 reads, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. So, um, have you ever been to a church service where the children's story is longer than the sermon? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Um, it, hopefully it will be a shorter sermon. Um, I like to try and keep them around a half hour. But um, um, appreciated that story, Brenda. Thank you. I was worried this morning. I hope you brought your Bibles with you because we are, are going to spend um, some time in Scripture this morning, probably more, <clears throat> more Scriptures than, than a typical sermon. Um, so I invite you to have your Bible uh, at the ready as we begin. One more word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much um, for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your spirit, who we believe is with us right now. And we just ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you have a least favorite book of the Bible? You don't have to answer that. I, I have a least favorite book of the Bible, though. And I don't know if we're supposed to, if we're supposed to have a least favorite. But I mean, the entire Bible is inspired by God. Um, but I do have a least favorite book of the Bible. That's the book of Job. And um, I apologize if that's your favorite. <laughs> I, I really appreciate the premise of the book of Job. It's not, uh, it's not the premise that bothers me. I actually like the idea of a man that's so upright that God uses him as evidence against Satan's accusations. I like that he remains faithful to God through severe trials, ultimately being rewarded according to his faithfulness. What bothers me about the book of Job is all the complaining during his affliction. There's literally chapters of it. I don't particularly like to listen to complaining. You can ask my wife that. It's not that I'm unsympathetic. You know, I, I think I do have a listening ear when a, when a friend is in need and needs help has a problem, and I believe that we should bear one another's burdens. It's just that continual repetitive complaining has a tendency to wear me down. <clears throat> so now that you know another one of my character flaws, I'd like to tell you I also have a favorite book of the Bible. My favorite book of the Bible is the book of Acts. It's just, it's just such an exciting time in the history of God's people. Prior to Acts, it seems like the disciples that Jesus has chosen are just really not up to the task. They didn't, they didn't understand his mission. They followed him for all the wrong reasons. They bickered about who would be greatest, and they couldn't even figure out the meanings of his parables. From a human perspective, it seemed like this Christian experiment was going to crash and burn. But then you get to the book of Acts, then you find this formerly weak, human-minded group of followers 
misfits, I, I wrote here actually this group of misfits that Christ has assembled, experiences nothing short of a metamorphosis. And they reappear as a bold, mission-minded band of believers, united in purpose and armed with the power of God. What happened? After Jesus' death and resurrection, the Bible tells us he appeared to them over the course of the next 40 days, speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And you say, that's it. This change came as a result of Jesus speaking these things to them during those 40 days. But although I'm sure those final messages from Jesus were helpful, in reality, Jesus had been speaking to them um, two and a half years, speaking things pertaining to the kingdom of God, seemingly without effect. Sure, that was before his death and resurrection, um, I'm sure that the passion uh, and that experience had a significant impact on them. But although this radical 180-degree swing and unswerving devotion to their mission had its roots in the teaching of Jesus, it involved an additional, an additional element to become the power that we see exhibited in the book of Acts. First scripture here, if you turn with me to Acts 1, verses 4 to 8. Acts 1, 48 gives an account uh, of the first recorded conversation, I'm sorry, the final recorded conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. Acts 1, 4 through 8, and it's a prophecy. Follow along with me as I read. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized you with water, but I shall be baptized you with the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you should receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There we have it. His closing remarks, Jesus reveals not just their future, but more importantly, the missing element, the source of power, that will make all the difference in their spiritual life. It's the Holy Spirit. This passage merits more than a quick read. <clears throat> Let's break it down a little bit. I see six distinct segments. Number one, there's a command. Jesus gives a command. Do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Then after the command, there's the promise baptism of the Holy Spirit, not too many days from now. Number three, he has some symbolic imagery for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Number four, there's the all too familiar misinterpretation from the disciples. And they ask him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Number five, 
Jesus redirects them, we, as he often did. It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And then finally, number six, we have a prophetic understanding of the fulfillment of this promise. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The first two segments, the, um, the command and the promise, when put together, they create what we know as a conditional promise. I think it's important to emphasize this um, because the promise did come with a condition. They had to stay in Jerusalem and wait. In your reading of the Gospels, have you ever noticed that these men were not very accomplished at waiting? They were always anticipating the next step, pushing Jesus to do what they thought was the next step. They seemed to constantly disapprove with his timing. Jesus is asking them to do something that is historically um, pretty difficult for them. They're not very good at it. But the promise was required, and they were learning the value of trusting Jesus. It's interesting to me the phrase that Jesus uses when he references this promise at the end of verse 4. He says, which, he said, you have heard from me. He's referencing something that he already taught them. Turn with me to John 7, 37 and 39. We can sort of look back at a couple examples of when Jesus um, had already talked to him about the, the Holy Spirit. John 7, 37 and 39 reads, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his, out of his, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. One example of Jesus telling them about uh, God's promise. Turn also with me to, again, also in John, chapter 16, verses 5 through 15, for another example of this. John 16, 5 through 15. And it reads, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more a judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but I cannot bear them, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it, to you. 
All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. This promise we see is not a new teaching. He had spoke of the gift of the Holy Spirit before. Even going back to before Jesus started his ministry, in our, it was our scripture reading today, Luke 3.16, um, John the Baptist, um, who Jesus referenced, spoke of this promise in Luke 3.16. John, an, John answered, saying to them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this promise even predated the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. It was no secret that Jesus wasn't teaching anything new. What he was doing here, though, was saying, remember all those times I told you about the Holy Spirit? It's time now. Just wait and see. I'd like to spend a few minutes with you now on a kind of on a scriptural journey um, comparing the gospel record with some of the events in the book of Acts. If you'd turn with me to start to Mark 10, 46 through 52. Brenda had said in her children's story that my sermon was about miracles and, and um, there are a lot of miracle stories that we're going to start looking at now. Mark 10, 46 to 52. Now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Robone, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, for your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. The familiar story of blind Bartimaeus, a spectacular event for sure. One of the 37 recorded miracles of Jesus. Up to this pivotal point in history, no one had been had witnessed the restoration of sight to a blind man. Now let's turn to Acts 9, 17, and 18. Acts 9, 17, and 18. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you at the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Here we find the follower of a man, the follower of Jesus, a man named Ananias, performing the same miracle that Jesus did, restoring Saul's sight, 
after he was struck blind on the road to Damascus. Through his spirit, Jesus imparted the same miraculous power he had access to while here on earth to those early believers. Turn with me now to another miracle of Christ in Mark 1, 2 through 20, I'm sorry, Mark 1, 23 to 28. We're going to look at like four different miracles here. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and and they obey, they obey him, and immediately his fame spread throughout the region and around Galilee. This is a one of a number of times that we read in the in the in the Gospels of Jesus casting out an unclean spirit out of someone that was tormented. Another amazing miracle, for sure, demonstrated, um, dem- you know, Jesus demonstrating his power, uh, the power of God over. Uh, the adversary. Again, let's compare this to a story we find in Acts, though. Let's go to Acts 16, 16 and 18. That reads, Now it happened, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us, and crying out, said, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So here again we see the power of Jesus being accessed by one of his followers to perform almost identical miracles to what he himself had done. Jesus frees captive humanity from double possession, and so does Paul. Turning back to the Gospels, we'll find um, our next passage in Luke 7. You could turn to Luke 7 with me. Verses 11 through 15, Luke 7, 11 through 15. Now it happened the day after that they went to the city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd of of the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried her stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. 
you know, there, there, there really shouldn't be any hierarchy of miracles because the, defin- the, 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 the definition of miracle is an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs, um, which all these things are. But somehow this one seems even more miraculous than the others. Here we find a dead man being carried out seemingly at his funeral, and Jesus touches the coffin and commands the man to arise and his lifeless body springs to life again. Surely this miracle couldn't be uh, repeated by his followers. But let's turn to Acts chapter 20, verses 7 to 12. Acts 20, 7 to 12. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued in his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and in a window sat a young, a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him, said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, he had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even until, even till daybreak he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and, there was, and they were not a little comforted. Ah, yes, Eutychus, an example of why we shouldn't fall asleep during the sermon. <clears throat> Those of you that were here during Pastor Bentley's tenure might recall, might remember him hitting the pulpit every now and then. He'd hit it with his fist. I remember him telling me, um, and I'll quote him here, I remember him telling me about that. He said, when I see someone sleeping, um, I do that. He said, I figured I put him to sleep. It's my job to wake him up. I guess Paul had that same sentiment, but uh, Paul's extended beyond the the sleep of rest to the sleep of death. After Eutychus in his slumber falls to his death, through the Spirit of God, Paul resurrects him. Let's look at uh, one more. I think this is our last miracle story or comparison. Um, Matthew 9, 20 to 22. Matthew nine twenty to 22. And it reads, And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garments. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garments, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Here we read about the woman of such great faith that she believed just touching Jesus' garments would bring restoration to her body. There's no power in cloth to heal infirmity. And Jesus clarifies that when he says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Do we find a similar faith manifest in the early believers after Jesus' ascension? Let's go back to Acts, flip to chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. 
I'm sure you've got the uh, pattern here already and you know what this is going to say, but um, Acts 19 verses 11 and 12 reads, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseased and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Just as there was no innate power in Jesus' garments, there was no, none in Paul's either. It was the faith of God, of the God that Paul served, that brought healing from, from Jesus through Paul and through his garments. Even more unusual than these healings, we find mentioned in Acts uh, 5, 15 to 16, of a healing method that as far as I know, as far as I can tell, Jesus didn't even demonstrate in his ministry. Acts 5, uh, 15 to 16 reads, So they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Sick people healed by Peter's shadow falling on them. Again, the healing didn't come from Peter or his shadow, but it came through their faith in Peter's God. <clears throat> All of these miracles in the book of Acts are what makes it such an exciting book, for an interesting book for me to read. But the miracles themselves would be ineffectual, if they were not done with a greater objective of building that first century body of believers into the mission, um, mission of, with the mission of spreading the good news of salvation through Christ to the world. The Holy Spirit not only enabled them to perform miraculous healings, but the Spirit also gave them boldness and a sense of purpose that led them to be a great witness for Jesus. When I read Acts, I can't help but contrast that early first century church with the 21st century church in which I reside. It was the spirit-driven resolve of those early believers that grew the church into a body of believers broad enough to endure 20 centuries through persecution through corruption, through humanism, naturalism, and postmodernism, down to the days in which we live. We talk of the Holy Spirit today, but miracles of healing and mass, con mass conversions are seemingly non-existent. Was the Holy Spirit poured out in greater measure on those early Christians? greater measure than we're able to access today? Do you think Jesus' promise applied to us as well? Is there an exciting era of Christian history yet to come? Permit me to read um, one more passage, this time from Desire of Ages, page 827. It says, the first disciples went forth preaching the word. 
they revealed Christ in their lives. And the Lord worked with them, confirming the word with signs following. With signs following. These disciples prepared themselves for the work. Before the day of Pentecost, they met together and put away all differences. They were of one accord. They believed Christ's promise that the blessing would be given. That's the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And they prayed in faith. They did not ask for a blessing for themselves merely. They were weighted with the burden of salvation of souls. The gospel was to be carried to the uttermost parts of the earth, and they claimed the endowment of the power that Christ had promised. Then it was that the Holy Spirit was poured out, and thousands were converted in a day. And this is, well, that's all important, but this is the important part here, the part I want to emphasize. So it may be now, Instead of man's speculations, let the word of God be preached. Let Christians put away their dissensions and give themselves to God for the saving of the lost. Let them in faith ask for the blessing, and it will come. The outpouring of the Spirit in apostolic days was the former reign, and glorious was the result. But the latter reign will be more abundant All who consecrate soul, body, and spirit to God will be constantly receiving new endowment, a new endowment of physical and mental power. The inexhaustible supplies of heaven are are at their command. Christ gives them both the breath of his own spirit, the life of his own life. The Holy Spirit puts forth its highest energies to work in heart and mind. The grace of God enlarges and multiplies, multiplies their faculties. And every perfection of the divine nature comes to their assistance in the, working, in the work of saving souls. Through cooperation with Christ, they are complete in him. And in their human weakness, they are enabled to do deeds of the omnipotent. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Do you want the inexhaustible supplies of heaven at your command? Do you want to be part of the glorious results of the latter reign? But do you sort of, like me, possibly wonder how you can fully consecrate body, soul, and spirit to God? Every sermon is supposed to end with a call. So here it is. If you want to discover how to allow Jesus to permeate your life and have a growing relationship with him, I have good news for you today. Beginning in a week and a half from now, on March uh, 21, it's a Tuesday evening, at 6 o'clock, we're going to be coming together here as a church family. And we're going to begin a study that's going to help us to, to do just that. I invite you to join Pastor Matt Mabio and, and me here at the church as we set out on a 14-week journey. I sincerely hope you will 
consider making this a priority. Setting aside, it's just one hour, just one hour a week on Tuesday night to come together with your brothers and sisters here and grow in Jesus. At this point in our earth's history, on the prophetic timeline, I don't think there's a higher priority. I implore you and invite you to join us, and I look forward um, to growing in Christ alongside of you. I want to be ready to receive Jesus and what he has in store for his 21st century disciples, don't you? Let's come together and use this as an opportunity to put away any dissension and give ourselves to God for the saving of the lost. Prepare to experience a more abundant outpouring of the Spirit of God. You are invited. You have been listening to the broadcast from the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church at 2420 East Ashman in Midland, Michigan. If you are in the area, we cordially invite you to visit our church Saturday mornings. If you are a distance away, we encourage you to continue visiting our website and weekly podcast at midlandsda.org.